spring is so much busier than like early summer. I think that that's a misconception that people don't have. So right starting in February and March, we're sowing seeds indoors and we're getting chicks and the chicks are living in our house because they need heat lamps and it's still cold and they don't have their feathers. So we have um, baby turkeys in my basement under a heat lamp still. <laughs> Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make the dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. For the 19th episode, my guest is Melissa Griffith from the Instagram page, Bless This Mess blog and the blog BlessThisMessPlease.com. Melissa is a Hoosier by birth and now lives in one of the prettiest places in the U.S., Utah, near Bryce and Zion National Park, with her husband and five kids. Melissa embodies farm to table. Her homestead is a hobby farm with bunnies, chickens, sheep, and even a cow. Her recipes are a celebration of baking and cooking, whose purpose is to help others build a sense of mindfulness and intuition around food and eating. Melissa, welcome to the Eight the World podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Rob. I looked through your Instagram page and I did it in a funny order. I looked from the very beginning forward and then from recent back. And it's funny because if you look from recent back, you see a house with a beautiful kitchen, lots of food and everything. But if you start at the very beginning, it's an empty plot of land uh, in the middle of Utah. So if you can share with me the story of how did you end up there and how did you get to where you are now, I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, I love this story too because people who come in for the end results, sometimes, right, you miss the nuance and the beauty of like the process. I met my husband. We were young. We got married in college. We started having kids in college. We graduated. Um, he graduated with his master's in engineering and I had two kids and we had always worked at home and done things. So we'd slowly been moving back to his hometown to open a, a hardware store with his dad. And so we we moved to town. It's literally in the middle of nowhere. There's 600 people in this town. So when I started my blog, we were in transition. We lived about two hours north of here and we were remodeling this house. And I had three kids at the time and we were all living in one room in the back. And then we had gutted the rest of the house and I'm washing dishes in a bucket. I didn't even have a sink. I washed dishes in the buckets. We were like, oh, it'll take eight or nine weeks to get a new kitchen in. No, it took nine months. So I washed dishes in a bucket for nine months with three little kids in the house. And I started on my blog in the middle of it. And I feel like that that's where I got the name was Bless This Mess. I was like, I have to write this down or no one's going to believe me because it's so crazy to be living in this in this circumstance. So we sold that house and then we bought the property here. And then for three years, we hand built our own house. We had a little bit of help with like the HVAC system, the heating and cooling, but we did everything else. We dug the foundation and we put in our basement and we framed it and we plumbed it and we wired it and we just worked and worked and worked for three years. And now we live here and we're working on landscaping. I've, we've lived here for three years, but we still don't have a, like a sidewalk to our front door. <laughs> it's like a true DIY. Well, it's great that you shared the entire journey of starting with, you know, land, land with a hole in it, land with hole with gravel, and then these really crazy 
you know, styrofoam molds and a big truck which poured concrete. And then eventually you get to this gorgeous finished kitchen. That's on the inside. What was changing on the outside in terms of your gardens and the animals? And how did that path develop? The garden and the animals have been here the longest. They started like before we even started building the house and doing all of that. I gardened here and I have my chickens here. We raise lambs and rabbits here. And so it has kind of stayed the same. So I started here with it, but then I did not change it. Like I garden in the same place and I would, I rotate my chickens through our, our, our orchard, but I never added anything. I never added anything permanent. I did my seasonal garden. We'd start over the next year, but we have not done any permanent like landscaping or changing of the farm until this year, which has been so, so exciting. My husband left his engineering job at the end of 2019 and then, and he was going to work with me. And then the pandemic hit at the beginning of 2020. And that was a really stressful thing. And so he has spent a lot of time, like, do I want to work with my wife? Do I want to like, so he does some things for me, but it just was not a good fit for us. And so he has been exploring for the last 18 months, what he wanted to do with this new time um, instead of going back to engineering. And he decided he wanted to start a farm. So we have been working on like the infrastructure of a farm to table farm and he is, we're really into apple cider pressing. And so just this spring we added to our orchard, we have started doing landscaping and moving dirt and making rice beds and planting raspberries. So it's gone really, really well. So tell me about, because I'm looking at a lot of the things that I do as a, as a, as a cook and as a, um, as a gardener, it's all really many versions of all the things that you do. So, you know, we have three raised beds in the community garden and a couple herb pots that we plant around. And it's springtime, so it's kind of like this weird mix of the things that we, the cold stuff that we planted plus the things that we're looking to plant once it gets warmer. Tell me about your spring and what's your gardening agenda. And, and I don't know anything about animals. so the kind of life cycle of animal uh, animal husbandry and all of that when when it's this time of year what things are you working on for you know what do you what are you uh sewing i think that i love seasonality it's one of my favorite favorite things i think that it's so important to eat and live seasonally so i love this question um Spring is so much busier than like early summer. I think that that's a misconception that people don't have. So right starting in February and March, we're sowing seeds indoors and we're getting chicks and the chicks are living in our house because they need heat lamps and it's still cold and they don't have their feathers. So we have um, baby turkeys in my basement under a heat lamp still. <laughs> so in the just in the last few months, we've brought on uh, this year's new egg layers. So we got 35 new chicks and they lived in the basement for, I don't know, six weeks until they feathered out and the nighttime temperatures got a little bit warmer, but they're outside in a, in a mobile coop right now and the turkeys have replaced them. And I've been sowing seeds indoors and working on getting the seedlings that I'll put out. Um, we are transitioning to raise beds from an in-ground garden. So normally I would have planted like all of my cold hardy vegetables by now, but I haven't because we're transitioning. I only have peas in the ground. Um, there's just a lot of things like that. We have a milk cow, so we milk her every day. And with her, we she was bred earlier than they thought when we bought her. She wasn't supposed to have a baby until May, but she ended up with a February baby. 
And so we have been in milk since we picked her up in the, in the beginning of March. So we milk every day, but we're looking at like when, when does she need to be bred again so that she can stay in milk and some of that stuff we're looking at. So it's fun. And then farmer's markets here haven't started yet, which is kind of nice. We're going to do like a farm vegetable stand at the top of our road because we are in between Zion and Bryce. So we get a lot of tourist traffic, but no one really has anything right now. So my farm stand's not open. We're just, this is all the prep, right? You're sowing all your seeds for dreams of fall. (laughs) Did you always have chickens? I've had chickens for eight years. They were kind of the first thing I brought in, and they're so fun. Easiest, most productive pets ever. Tell me about raising chickens, because I have no experience in this. It just, it looks like a hoot, but I'm also scared that my dog is going to have chicken dinner. So tell me about, like, raising chickens and what the joy of that process is. Chickens are super fun. So we just pick up chicks at our local local hardware store. And when you bring them home, they can live inside for a long time. If you have a little space, they'll live in a cardboard box and they just need food and water and a little bit of heat. And they, traditional heat lamps are red and really bright and they get really hot. But I found this cool little infrared. It doesn't have any light. It's just like essentially like a heater plate on legs. And so they just get underneath it and it feels really safe. And I just keep it in my basement. And then there'll be teenagers at about six to eight weeks, they'll get all their feathers and then you can move them outside. And I think the key with chickens is they just need some space. Like don't crowd too many in too small of a coop or they get bored and peck each other. And that's not ideal living conditions. And if you have a little room and you can let them out during the day or let them out for even two or three hours in the evening, if you're home from work, they thrive really well. Most of them are natural foragers and they'll peck at your bugs and eat your weeds and they're just a lot of fun. And then like when we have gone on vacation in the past, man, that's a world, right? <laughs> Haven't been on vacation in a while. Um, we can just put five gallon buckets of food and water in there and we have left our birds for two weeks at a time. So they're really low key and then they give you eggs. It's like magic and they eat all your dinner scraps. I have five kids. We definitely have some table waste. I really believe in intuitive eating. So I'm not like a, you have to clean your plate kind of mom. And so we try to work on portion control, and but when kids serve themselves, sometimes they overserve what they're going to eat. So the chickens eat all that and turn them into eggs. So it feels so good to not waste that food. When you're buying your day-old chicks, are you buying chicks that are going to become layers, or is it going to be a mix of hens and roosters? Um, it depends. Our elementary school, the third grade, normally hatches chicks as part of a science project. And so there's all these chicks in the community and I end up with a lot of them. So for many years, I haven't bought chicks, but last year, everyone wanted their chicks because it was, she had started hatching them before the school shut down. Um, And so I didn't get any chicks. So if you buy them from a hatchery, you can buy straight run, which means that they are all sexed. It's like 93% accurate or something. And you can get all females. But when our friends was, were just hatching their eggs it was definitely a mix like I got 11 birds from her and eight of them were roosters oh wow yes and then do you you go for like the whole life cycle so you go from eggs and then eventually meat or uh for the roosters we do yeah we utilize the roosters because too many roosters in a flock they'll just they overbreed your hens and it it's really hard on the hens so too many roosters are an issue. So yep, we, we call it freezer camp. They go to freezer camp kind of when they reach maturity 
um, maybe 12 weeks like a traditional meat bird. And we do, we honor them. My husband, we process them here and we utilize them and I put them in the slow cooker and I'll make broth and eat the meat. So we, we let them have a good life until they have their one bad day. And then what are you planting in the ground? What's the, what's this year's crop going to look like? Oh my gosh. I want to start a flower farm so bad. So I'm really focused on uh, cut flowers that are low water, uh, low maintenance cut flowers. I'm looking at sunflowers and zinnias, uh, baby's breath, cosmos, those kind of things. I plant kind of everything. Um, traditional tomatoes, green beans, zucchini, cucumbers. I love pumpkins. I always do a little bit of a pumpkin patch and I have a fall party where we fry donuts outside and I invite my neighbors and all the kids pick gourds and pumpkins, which is so, so fun. We did want to try com like more commercial sweet corn, have enough sweet corn to sell in bulk, but I don't know if we'll get, I don't know if we'll get to that this year, but I like all the traditional things. I think green beans are my favorite. They're so good. I've put in carrots, chard, kale, uh, some of the early lettuces. I mean, it's the time of year where either you're going to worry about August or you want to get something wholesome sooner. So we did um, we did all of the in-ground, outside, cold-hardy things. I think in last year with the pandemic, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to do growing from seed in the house and then transplant, but I didn't have enough light, either natural light or um, or man-made light. So all of my lettuce got, it was weak and leggy, which isn't, which isn't an attractive thing for lettuce. I feel like starting seeds is hard. I don't do a lot of, I direct sow or I'll buy plants just from our little local um, hardware store. It's really hard to start seeds. I think that people underestimate that. I buy my tomato plants and my pepper plants, but I do, we love, my kids' favorite is probably potatoes and carrots because it feels like treasure hunting every time. So we plant a lot of carrots and they, they eat them as soon as they can find little fingerling ones. And we'll, I'll plant enough and here it doesn't freeze super hard. So I can keep them in the ground and dig them as I need them. Like I had carrots until March. Wow. So when, when did you plant the carrots? Were they from the season before or did you plant them in March? No, no, they were from the season before. So these were like my May, June carrots and I, they, they just overwinter in the ground really well here. It was kind of like cold storage. That's wild. Do you get snow and, and does the ground freeze? We get a little bit. The ground doesn't freeze super hard. It was a pretty mild winter too. And our clay, it just kind of keeps it in there really nicely. So yeah, we get a little snow, but then it melts. We're high desert. You know, looking through, there's your, your, um, your message, the message of the blog about recipes, about taking care of the kids and about um, all the different food choices then it links somehow to the farm, but I'd never get a sense of, you know, how self-sufficient are you in terms of all the things that you, you raise versus all the things that you buy? There's so much you can't raise. Like I don't raise sugar. We do our own meat and we do, I would say 50% of our fruits and vegetables, but I don't raise any grain and I don't actually eat a lot of meat personally. Like I feed it to my family. We'll do, we'll do a pig and we do our chickens and we, we get local beef. I don't eat a ton of it. So grain has always like, we eat a lot of oatmeal. I make a lot of sourdough bread. I really like lentils because they're well-rounded. So I bet I don't do any of my own grains. 
but we do our own meat. We do our own dairy. We make, I make our cheese. We make butter. I say we're 50%. Is this something that was new as a result of putting the blog together and having the family, or is this something that's been a tradition that you've been doing forever? No, no, it's the milk cow. You magically have this milk and you need something to do it with. So cheese is like way new to me, like this spring. That's wild. And are you doing everything? So you're basically taking milk, adding rennet, and then like, how do you know what to do? Other people write recipes, right? I just found, I bought a cheese, a mozzarella and a ricotta making kit from Cultures of Health. So I just bought it online for $25 and it came with the rennet and the citric acid and the few things you needed and a thermometer. And I've only made mozzarella and like a farmhouse hard cheese, like that needs a little bit of pressing and ricotta. Wow. How much fun is that? So I'm not, I'm not too far into it. (laughs) Right. I feel like this all isn't like, this is all really personal. It's not all reflected in the blog and on the brand. Like I want people to just feed their families and to show up and to cook dinner and it to go well. I feel like if you're going to eat three meals a day that you shouldn't hate the process every single time. So some of this farm stuff is more like passion project for me. I saw that you had used the Instant Pot to make yogurt before. And when my kids were little, we made all our own yogurt because it's so surprisingly easy to make. Plus, it changes the dynamic because suddenly if you have a better understanding of where your milk is coming from, then you just get the most fantastic yogurt ever. It's a completely different experience. I completely agree. I have a batch. I just strained it and... Mine, I don't know if it's this, so my cow is actually lactose-free, not true lactose-free, but she has very light lactose. She's a Dexter, and that's just her breed, Um, and so my yogurt has been a little bit curdly. It looks a little bit closer to cottage cheese when I strain it, and so I've been putting it in my stand mixer and just whipping it up a little bit with frozen berries so that it's kind of like a pre-mixed yogurt, and I put it in the fridge so the kids can just pull it out and it's ready to go. Yeah, I just did a batch this morning. I did a half gallon. It'll last about three days in our house. Yeah, it goes surprisingly fast because it's there, it's easy, it's good. So why not, right? And you're right. It's so easy. You're essentially just warming, keeping milk warm enough and adding a little bit of last batch of yogurt. And right, the live and active culture of your last batch will inoculate your new one. It's so simple. It's fantastic. In the, in the beginning, uh, when you were posting recipes, you did something which I thought was very clever. You had a whole series of recipes which were basically frozen ingredients or prepped ingredients that you could freeze in a bag, but then when you add to a slow cooker, creates this wonderful meal. Can you talk a little bit about the concept and, you know, looking back on what you were doing then and things that you've learned along the way, like what would you tell people if they're thinking about you know, food prep and using the slow cooker and making it easy on themselves. Yeah, this is essentially like freezer meals that are for the slow cooker, right? So you put everything in the bag, you write on it, you might need to add some broth. I didn't put all of the liquid in it because it is really bulky in the freezer, but I had like a lentil soup and a black bean chili and spaghetti and meatballs, but without the spaghetti. So it's all the things you need and you just dump the frozen contents from your freezer And these are something that you could prep 10 or 20 meals in a few hours on a Saturday morning, freeze them all, and then you just pop them in the slow cooker the morning you want to use them. It's just one of those things. Like I really like to, 
I really like to help busy families cook food. <laughs> so this was one of the ways to show up for my audience was to say, hey, if you prep this all in one day, here's the shopping list, here's what you need to do, then just dump it in your slow cooker the morning you're going to have a crazy day or a lot of baseball or you're working late, then, then dinner was kind of thought of and prepared and it took some of the crazy out of the mealtime so that you still could eat together as a family instead of running through the drive-thru on the way to and from practice like you knew that something hot was waiting for you at home and then you can you can enjoy that together actually slow cooker is perfect that way i used to do a lot more slow cooking and then i discovered the instant pot and all of a sudden like things changed because the you know i used pressure cookers before but it it was a lot more guesswork in terms of time and in terms of heat and everything. Can you talk a little bit about when you got your first Instant Pot and when you figured out, well, this is really a different thing? Yeah, I just had a conversation about Instant Pot with someone else and she was like, do you think it's a fad? And I was like, nope, I really think it's here to stay. Like my mom didn't have a KitchenAid stand mixer when I was a child. Everyone has a KitchenAid stand mixer now. That's how it was like with blenders. Like my mom made some milkshakes in a blender. A blender is like a, we use it all the time for smoothies and salsa and muffins. You know what I mean? I feel like the Instant Pot is that next appliance that's just going to be really standard in most kitchens, uh, especially if you're cooking. I, I was late to the Instant Pot game. I think I got mine Christmas 2018, so not forever ago. And I love it. I I had a stovetop traditional um, pressure cooker, so I didn't feel like I need it. But the nuance of the Instant Pot is so nice because it's electric. You can walk away from it. It just is a little bit, it's so much less intimidating than a traditional uh, pressure cooker. And I like that it does like have low pressure. So I cook, I batch cook beans in it and I do all my broth in it and I do yogurt in it. I just feel like it's really robust, but then you can still make mac and cheese or chicken and rice. And it's, I love it too. I'm convinced. Um, my go-tos that I have to use the Instant Pot on, all of my barbecue ribs, I will take 20 minutes in the Instant Pot to get it nice and soft with, with lots of uh, spice and flavoring. And then I can finish it on the grill or finish it on the smoker. But it turns the meat into something which is, you know, it just has some some terrific mouthfeel. And I know it's, for my recipe, it's always going to be 23 minutes. So I can press the buttons, walk away, and I have no fear that, you know, there's variation in, in the cooking. I do it for um, boiled rice soup and beans. I mean, those are those two different dishes. Because once again, you, you can set the time you want, walk away. It's not going to blow up the kitchen. So I, I absolutely love it. And I thought right. it was brilliant seeing all the different things that you were making. Because I never considered using an Instant Pot for – I think you did something really interesting with uh, an egg. It's like a bunch of eggs that you've cracked on the bottom of the Instant Pot – Tell me about that dish. Yeah, so if you've gotten to, they call it pot and pot or pan and pot. So if people are making like cheesecakes and things in their Instant Pot, the springform pan fits inside the bottom and you still put water on the bottom. So instead of doing a whole bunch of eggs in it, because boiled eggs, especially fresh eggs, fresh eggs are so hard to peel, but when you pressure cook them, it works so, so well. So the idea is like if you're making egg salad, you can spray your springform pan that fits inside of the pot and put it on the colander and put water on the bottom. You can break the eggs into the pan. You can pressure cook them, 
already broken and it makes this like cooked egg patty. And then when you take it out, you can just chop it on your cutting board and you don't have to peel the egg. So it's like the fastest way ever to make egg salad. And it works so, so well. That's so great. And then the cleanup, since you're, you're limited to that, I guess, the, the metal insert into your Instant Pot, it's one thing to wash. So that's easy. Yeah. Let's talk, if you don't mind, I want to talk about meal planning because you have one page which I ended up not only copying, but um, on Sunday morning we sat around and we said, okay, let's figure out seven categories and let's brainstorm. So you have a specific approach to meal planning, and can you share it with people and explain why people should consider using this approach to make their lives just a lot easier, especially in terms of shopping? Yeah, meal planning is one of my favorite habits that you should cycle through. You should you should get into it. You don't have to stick. It's like it's like everything else in life. It's cyclical, but you should know how to do it so that you can come back to it when it's going to serve you. So how I like to do it is I have people come up with categories and you assign them a day. So you can do this by grain if you wanted to, say like Mondays are rice day and Tuesdays are beans and Wednesdays are a bread product, or you could do it by protein or you can do it by category. And category is my favorite and the most popular. So like Mondays could be Tex-Mex and Tuesday Italian and Wednesday meatless and Thursday soup and Friday grill, or you could have an ethnic night. You could... You could do comfort food. There's just, you could do breakfast for dinner. There's so many categories that you can pick from. And then once you have picked some categories, seven being the least up to, you know, 10 or 12, if you're going to rotate, like I have my soup recipe and or I have my soup and stew recipe, but I switch it out in the summer for grill night. And so I will go ahead and like write all your categories down and then just brainstorm. This is not new recipes. These are things that you have eaten. You know how to make, you have a general concept of. So like for breakfast, for dinner, or let's do soups and stews. Like if I have a soup and stew category, like the soups and stews that I make really often, I make an alphabet soup. I make a cheesy broccoli soup that has a one minute cook time in the Instant Pot. It's so good. <laughs> I do a vegetarian chili. I have a cheesy potato soup. You know what I mean? I just write, these are the soups that I make, but sometimes I forget. Like I don't make the alphabet soup all that often because I just don't think about it. But I'm so brainstorm this master list underneath your categories of all the things that you do know how to make. And if you're doing Italian or even pizza night. So for pizza night, you could do traditional pizza. You could do mini pizzas where the kids decorate your own. You could do strombolis. You could do calzone. You could do there's so many variations just of pizza that you don't do because you get in a rut and you just are picking up pizza or you're just making a traditional pan pizza that if you were to think about it just a little bit, you could have a lot more variation within these categories than you really think of. So I love, I, this is just your master list. So it's your categories, then it's everything that you just kind of know or like or want to make underneath them. And then you assign the categories to a day of the week and I do a whole month at a time. So on Mondays, I'll have my, my Italian night and we'll, okay, we're gonna have meatballs one night, we're gonna have stuffed shells, we're gonna do a lasagna soup, and fettuccine. So there's, but on my, my master list, I probably had 12 different ideas. So if I wanted to really commit to it, I could have planned three months at a time because I have 12 recipes under each category and I'm just assigning them a day of the week. Let's talk a little bit about baking because a lot of your recipes are baking and there's a good mix between the sweet and the savory baking. Have you always been a baker and talk to me about your journey into 
you know, now I would consider you an expert baker with some wonderful sourdough breads, for example, and starter and, you know, you go the gamut, but what was your journey to start and how would you t explain to people that are just trying to figure out, you know, is this something I want to try? What, what advice would you give them? I think that I have always been a baker. Like my 16th birthday, I made myself a key lime pie. It curdled and I added too much green food color and it was just this Grinch green curdled pie. <laughs> and I just have these funny stories of like, right, these trails of trial and error. And my mom was really gracious with me in the kitchen. She let me try things and she let me cook because it was in my heart and I liked it and I wanted to experiment. I've, I, my very first cooking experience, I would call it doctoring up her pasta sauce because my mom makes great food. She's a good baker, but I grew up in the Midwest and we ate our, our 20 things, right? We ate pasta with jarred sauce. We ate hot dogs. We ate boxed mac and cheese. She were, right? She's just a normal mom with six kids. And so I remember really early on, I would like add a can of crushed tomatoes or herbs out of the garden or saute an onion and pepper before I added the jar of canned or, you know, jarred pasta sauce. So she let me experiment from a young age. And then I also learned with her. She's great at breads and pies and cookies. That's like, it was just part of our growing up. It was just really normal to make that stuff. So when I left the house, I could not make a cookie. I, I was a terrible baker. I had trouble with bread and I did not find success in them. And then my mother-in-law had this one roll recipe. It's a clover roll recipe and it is on my site. And it's, my mother-in-law is kind of the same way. She's not a great cook. She makes what she makes and they taste good, but she doesn't venture out. So if she's making this yeast roll recipe and it's turning out every time, that was a recipe that gave me the confidence to do it because it worked for her and I knew it would work for me. And you just, you don't have to shape them. You, they, you just put the little balls of dough in a muffin tin and then they rise up and they're so cute, but it's not, it doesn't take a lot of finesse. And so I think once I had success with that recipe, it gave me confidence to keep moving forward. But I was not a good baker when I left my house. But I have just done it so much because I really do like it and I wanted to get it. And I also, I have a bunch of kids. So, so there's always someone to eat it, even, even the flops. And then there's the chickens, right? There's always someone who's going to eat it. So I don't feel like I'm wasting. And that's actually really helpful. And I love to know where our food comes from. So knowing how to make hamburger buns and bread, and I'd rather have organic cookies with sugar in it that I made than, you know what I mean, store-bought something just feels in, in, in my quest to really eat how I felt like I wanted to eat. It was important to learn. I look at a lot of Instagram pages and a lot of people that are home cooks, and it's very interesting because you can tell things about people's personality or people's, you know, how they approach food. And one of the observations I have on, on your cookies and your sweet baking is you do this wonderful thing where it's not just the cookie. So it's a cookie plus M&Ms on top, or it's a cookie plus a glaze, or it's a peanut butter something plus a dip. So there's an extra level of something on top of it, which makes it both different and really, really special. But it's it also makes it really interesting because when I go through every single picture, I say, oh, it's a really nice. Like, for example, I'm just clicking on it now. The springtime cookie. So your Greek yogurt sugar cookies, but it has such a lovely, I guess, frosting on top. With Greek yogurt. With Greek yogurt. Oh, so Greek yogurt's in the frosting, not in the 
not in the it's a normal sugar cookie it's in both oh okay so what was your inspiration for that recipe i the greek yogurt makes the sugar cookies super not cake-like but so so tender it takes right it's just like an added layer of like moisture and fat but it makes the mouth feeling like the crumb of the cookie really different than an all butter cookie so that was i wanted something that was just super soft super tender kind of like the loft loft house pink cookies so that that was the goal just that really really tender cookie it's a beautiful image i mean it's it's really wonderful cookies plus this beautiful swirl of frosting and then some sprinkles on top i mean i, I i'm absolutely uh amazed by it. The other thing that amazed me, and I mentioned it when we were corresponding before this podcast, was as soon as I came upon the uh, the, the Parmesan pretzel bites, I just had a full pause and I said, oh, this is, this is, this is a really great recipe because it's, it has all the tastes that I love. It has cheesy taste and it has kind of like the, the mouth feel when you boil a, a, um, a, a boil a pretzel in, in, uh, in an alkali. And then you could add, I guess, whatever sauce or dipping sauce you want. Yeah, it comes with a Parmesan dipping sauce, too. Those pretzel bites, too. They're so good. I love pretzels because, I, like I said, I have a bunch of little kids. And making pretzels was one of those afternoon activities that we could do that was kind of like playing with Play-Doh, but then you had a snack built into it, <laughs> if that makes sense. I love, I call them edible crafts. So we, we make noodles or we'll make pretzels or we'll, we just... My kids are actually really good at making pie. It's kind of right, playing with the dough and cutting a lattice and making the cutting the apples that we have saved. Like I know people get so funny about sugar and I just think that if you like change your relationship with it, it's so much simpler. But these edible crafts with a whole bunch of kids that you homeschool on a snowy afternoon have been a lifesaver for my parenting. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we do I mean my my kids are now um, 11 years old and they're at the age where with a little bit of supervision, they actually can do a lot. And since they've grown up, you know, with me cooking all the time, they have strong opinions. So they know what they want to eat or they want to try. And, you know, it's not, these aren't fancy ingredients. It's just, hey, can I try this or can I try that? Um, but letting them them do it, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? It's, you know, a little bit, a few more minutes of cleanup, right? Isn't it so fun? And this is this is how I got my start. Like my mom gave me permission to be uh, a human who makes mistakes, but who wants to learn in her kitchen. And that's like, look at what it's given me. It's changed my life. It's provided income for my family of seven. And I, I really give her credit and her parenting for giving me that gift. So I just always hope as a parent that I have the eyes to see what not to squash. Do you know what I mean? Just because I don't want them to make a mess. Like they need to be able to explore some of what is inside of them. And and I have some kids that really like to cook. I have 11 year old too. It's such a fun age. It's a great age because it, the conversation changes a lot in terms of what they're exposed to and what they can do. And, and it becomes, you know, the age where you're really trying to build up young people. The business of the blog and how that's changed over the years. I mean, if you look at the original uh, pictures, there were a couple pictures, and then I guess offline recipes and incorporated recipes into Instagram, and I saw you've made a couple really nice reels. How is the change of technology flowing in relation to what you think you need to do to build your audience and to build your business and to you know 
to provide for your family? Yeah, so when I started in like 2009, it was just a family blog and I would put recipes on it. And then I transitioned to a business model in 2012. And there was still a lot of uh, personal commentary, right? People still in 2012 wanted that. They wanted to know, that's why I still, I talked about building our house and living in one room. And we would used to find crazy things in the walls. Like I, I just found a violin and magazines and books and board games. Like we found crazy things in the remodeling of this house that we lived in the Mac of. And I would share these things with the recipes. And then maybe four or five years ago, we started really getting getting into search engine optimization where I was catering to Google and I was like, I wanted to rank for certain keywords that would bring in traffic. And people did not want the stories. It was pretty much a be quiet and give me the recipe mentality. So I have spent years taking myself out of my blog and being very professional and not writing anything personal. And then last year, I just think that COVID made us say, hey, we miss each other. We we miss we miss telling stories and we miss the connection of people. So in an effort to do that, like I've started writing a weekly recap of what's happening on our farm on Sundays. It's only a few weeks old and I'm loving it so much. So I think that people change with technology and that's okay. And it's been fun to change with it too. It's fun to be back in my blog. <laughs> it's fun to write about what I'm doing with the animals and the kids and what we're planning in the garden, even though I'm not writing gardening content. I'm, you know what I mean? Things, the story can fit, even if it's in a separate post. A lot of people still don't want the story with a recipe, but if you are attached to me and my brand and you want that, you can still come and read it. And Instagram has been so fun. Instagram stories is really where a lot of personality can shine because that's why people are there. They're somewhat interested in the in the recipe if they're there, but Instagram stories has really become what blogging was in 2009 and 10 and 11. It's where you you share the more of the day to day and that has it's fun that it has a place. You've posted a bunch of pictures with your family. I've never posted any pictures of my kids and I'm more I guess introverted or shy that way and I think being on a podcast, I'm happy with my voice out there. I think I'd be a bit more uh, more uneasy with my video. I think it's just a personal preference thing. In terms of where you see the technology going and where you're positioning yourself to reach the people with the message that you have, is it going to be more video moving forward uh, or is it going to be more recipe based or where do you think uh, bless this mess, 2022-2023, what, what is it going to look like? I am working on my own products. I think that what 2020 taught me was that my income stream was really narrow because I make 80 to 90% of my income on display ads based on traffic. So Google, specifically Google, I'm not even that great with social media. So Google drives traffic to my site and then people get free content, but they see the display ads on my site. And that is literally 80 to 90% of my income for my family of seven. And so when advertising got weird and things got weird during 2020, I said, man, I'm super narrow. I'm not even diversified in how people are getting to my site. It's very, very narrow. So I wrote three cookbooks during the pandemic. I wrote um, two, two kind of traditional cookbooks and then a sourdough cookbook. And then I realized that they were so much harder to sell, like the physical cookbook, like it cost me like $25 to $28 just to get it to their house because I wanted it lay flat and I wanted it a hardcover. And 
I am providing free shipping. Like my overhead for the cookbooks is so, so expensive that I'm not making a lot of money on them. And so I said, why don't you try sewing after selling cookbooks for, you know, eight or nine months and people loving them. People love having something in their house from me. It's so fun to have a, if you like physical cookbooks, you like physical cookbooks. And it was good, but it made me see, okay, how else can I package all of this years of knowledge and content and helpfulness? And you know what I mean? I really, I really understand what my people want. I really understand how to deliver it. And I have thousands of recipes. So how else can I get them to them? So I am working on like a digital option and it's cooking from scratch. And then the upsell is sourdough. And then the second upsell is going to be about gardening. So I'm really catering towards owning my own products and really giving my audience what they've been asking for and what will be helpful to them. And so I am excited about that. I will still cater towards Google. I still hope to rank for amazing search terms. <laughs> and I um, I participate in Pinterest really regularly. They drive, it drives some traffic. But I think that video and selling my own digital product to my audience will be really important to me in 2022 and 23. How would you describe your audience? I think that they're busy moms looking to get dinner on the table. And they're awesome. <laughs> my audience is so fun. But right, I just feel like there's a separation too. There's my Instagram audience. There's people who really know who I am. And then there's a million people who come from Google who will never come back. They're, they're, they're very different. So they're showing up. They're seeing a recipe. They're trying it out. But then there, there isn't a lot of stickiness there. Right. Because if you just Google, like I do really well for cornbread. So if you are making chili and you Google cornbread and you make it, people love the recipe. It does phenomenally well. You're going to probably make that cornbread, but odds are you're going to print it out and you're just going to make the cornbread. There is not a lot of stickiness with Google traffic. They're not there for the person behind the blog. They're there for a really solid recipe. With with our conversation and with all the other conversations that I've had, I've asked ahead of time, please give me a recipe I can make that's your recipe, and then let's go from there. And you suggested egg noodles. Why egg noodles of all things? And tell me what you think it says about your cooking, your background, or your memories, or your audience, or, or any of those things. Yes, this egg noodle recipe that I wanted you to try is for my grandma. My grandma will be 90 this year. We're super good friends. She had 13 children. She's just this phenomenal human who raised 11 boys, two girls, and she is someone that's been in my life. And something that she would always make, she just whip up these egg noodles. She wasn't a gourmet cook, she, but she was solid. She cooked seasonally. They added a garden. She made really good meat and potatoes and noodles and do you know what I mean? Just really classic recipes. And that's kind of what I wanted to teach people is like, look, you don't have to make these these super crazy recipes to be a good cook. It can look like flour and salt and a teeny bit of milk if you want to add it and some eggs and it turns into this thing. And I also like the egg noodles because it's something that I brought into my family. I hope that it's part of like the food culture that my children remember because we did. We this, this was one of the food crafts. We would roll out egg noodles and they would use, my kids learn how to um, spell their names with alphabet cookie cutters when we made homemade graham crackers and when we would make egg noodles. And this is just how my kids learn the alphabet at home when they're, you know, three and four and we're rolling out this egg noodle 
that reminds me of my grandma. And so I tell them stories of my grandma and we're making these on the, on the cold wintry day. And then we're boiling up this chicken that we had loved and had a good life and just a nourishing meal, body and soul. And I wanted to share it with you because it's easy, but people feel intimidated by it. It's one of those recipes. I think if you would just try it, you would realize how fun this is. This is such a fun recipe to learn how to make. You're not going to mess it up. It tastes delicious. You'll be so proud of the end result without a lot of work. I think I found all of that. What I loved about the recipe is that I think it was very centering in terms of figuring out who are you and what are the things that you like to bake? Because I, when I when you suggested the recipe, I said, okay, I'll make noodles. And then what? And then what? And you were like, well, you could do anything, which I think was almost like a, a nice way of saying, you know, do some more research and see what you find. So I went through your Instagram pages again, and I thought, you know what, the, these noodles, this is going to be, um, you know, I rolled it out and I used, I had a, like a, a fettuccine attachment on my KitchenAid. So I was able to make nice noodles, boil them up. And I thought, you know, some baked chicken, uh, a creamy mushroom sauce, some green beans. And, and I showed you the picture and I thought this would fit in perfectly in the bless this mess kind of universe of things that are, are, it didn't take a lot of time technique wise. It wasn't, it was interesting, but it wasn't super challenging. I didn't feel I was overwhelmed. And the staggering of, you know, you make your noodles and then you, you roll it out. You can clean up and then start and clean up. So it doesn't, it, it's not 17 different ingredients. So I really felt that through the exercise of doing it, I really felt connected with the message of what Bless This Mess is about. So I thought it was deceptively brilliant that you say, okay, start with simple noodles and then then you'll figure out more about me. I like that so much. And, and the noodles are so robust. Like I had a whole bunch of 16 year olds. So we live in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot of places to go on dates. So I had a bunch of kids. I probably have 15 kids a year ago, 16 year olds on a date. And so they made the noodles and then we did a brown butter sauce with sage in it. Do you know what I mean? And they turned it into ravioli and it was just fancy. When I do it with my kids, sometimes my grandma would boil them in a small amount of uh, chicken broth with some chicken pieces and she just called it chicken noodles it was just like this kind of thick a little bit of extra flour on the noodles thicken the broth and it's just this she served it for holidays this was like thanksgiving food of my childhood was these chicken noodles and my mom would like i put them in soup my mom occasionally will put red sauce over them like you really can do whatever your heart desires with these noodles and you're right that's it's not overly complicated but it I always think it's really grounding too. I really like things that aren't so complicated that I have to spend my whole time thinking about it, but I'm, this is, I'm using my hands and I'm, I'm interacting with my food before I eat it. And I always feel so much better to eat it. I agree. I agree. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot in terms of going through all your recipes and thinking about things. And it, there were a few recipes that absolutely inspired me that will show up on my on my dinner table in the next week or so. So Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time and, and having this chat with me. I love to talk about food. Thanks for being a great host.